Welcome to the Two Journeys Bible Study Podcast. This podcast is just one of the many resources available to you for free from Two Journeys Ministry. If you're interested in learning more, just head over to twojourneys.org. Now on to today's episode. This is part one of episode 41 in our Acts Bible Study Podcast. This episode is entitled, To Jerusalem, where we'll discuss Acts chapter 21, verses 1 through 36. I'm Wes Treadway, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, what are we going to see in these verses we're looking at today? Well, the centerpiece of this chapter is Paul's journey to Jerusalem. And uh, once he gets there, um, a riot that is started by his Jewish opponents. Um, Before that, we're going to see Paul thoroughly warned by Agabus the prophet through the Holy Spirit of the kind of distress that was going to face him, that he would lose his freedom that he would be bound. And for the rest of the book, indeed, the rest of the book of Acts, Paul is bound. He's not free to go. And so uh, this chapter shows how the Holy Spirit warned him ahead of time what was going to happen, but also his determination to go to Jerusalem. And then his reception there among the church when he still had his freedom, the church welcoming him. And then some steps he took as best he could to maintain unity with Jewish believers and also an attempt to share the gospel with unbelieving Jewish people. And then a great misunderstanding that led to the riot and led to Paul's arrest. So there's a lot to cover today. Well, let me go ahead and read Acts chapter 21, verses 1 through 36. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemy, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea. We entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. And while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God, and they said to him, 
You see, brothers, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law, and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men And the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification will be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd, for the mob of the people followed crying out, Away with him. Andy, why do you think Luke includes the details of Paul's travels to Jerusalem at the beginning of this passage that we're looking at today? Well, I think Luke's intention, and even more importantly, the Holy Spirit's intention, is to help the readers in centuries to come uh, have a sense of the historicity of the New Testament, the historicity of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and the historicity here of the book of Acts. There is no religion in the world for which history is so important as Christianity. And this is inspired history. This is perfect history from the Holy Spirit through the pen of Luke. Luke also at the beginning of Luke Acts, at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, um, talks about his procedure and how he had uh, investigated everything thoroughly and wrote down an orderly account and all that. He really is a historian. So it's helpful for us that we know that in the days of Caesar Augustus, a, a decree was sent out that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world when Jesus was born. And this uh, was the first census that took place when Quirinius was governor of Syria. I mean, this is the kind of thing Luke does. Mm-hmm. Now we have all these uh, uh, these place names. And I, well, while you were reading it, I was looking at the back of my Bible at the map. And so many of you have Bibles that have maps at the back and you can just go look and find all these places. They're just kind of bumping along the coast of modern day Turkey. And there they all are. And so this gives us a sense of the reality, the physicality of all of these things. This is not myth. This is not the, the, uh, 
the Hindu scriptures that read like myth or the Norse Norse uh, writings of Thor and all that. This is real. This mm. actually happened. So I think that's why he does it. Now, one of those places is Tyre. Mm-hmm. What is the history of the church at Tyre and how would you describe this church from this chapter? All right. So the um, before before the, you ask the history of the church and Jesus himself was in Tyre and he healed a Syrophoenician woman's demon-possessed daughter in Tyre. Um, And so that may be the beginning of believers there. Jesus didn't do many uh, miracles up there. He also had criticized the Jewish cities in which most of his miracles had been performed because they didn't repent. He said, woe to you, uh, Capernaum, if the miracles that were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have remained uh, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. So the, Jesus used Tyre and Sidon as an example to shame the Jewish cities who weren't repenting. Hmm. Um, you know, Bethsaida and and uh, these other cities that had seen all these miracles and hadn't repented. Now, before that, Tyre has a long history, uh, most of it negative. Uh, the city of Tyre is represented as a port city, a wealthy city, a city of trade. And so the king of Tyre in um, Ezekiel 28 is a Satan figure similar to the king of Babylon, the Lucifer passage in Isaiah 14. So you have in Isaiah 14, the king of Babylon representing military conquest. And we have the king of Tyre represent representing um, commercial success, you know, wealth through trade. Satan's behind both of them. That's the world, isn't it? That's military conquest and wealth through trade. Mm. And so Tyre is a wicked city like Corinth, a port city with all kinds of things going on and Satan is behind it. But then in the course of time, the gospel comes there in the book of Acts and now we have clear evidence of a healthy, strong, gospel-believing church that delights in Paul and warmly welcomes him. So it's pretty beautiful. This theme has been raised before in the book of Acts as we've been journeying through it, but how should we reconcile warning and compelling we see in this passage? If the Spirit wanted Paul to go to Jerusalem, why does it say in verse 4 that the Christians entire were through the Spirit warning Paul not to go? Right, and you know, uh, later in the text, we'll talk about Agabus in due time. Um, but he directly ties his prophecy to the Holy Spirit, and we'll get to that. Uh, I don't want to steal a thunder from Agabus, but right here we have the same kind of thing. Now it just goes back to Acts twenty. He says, "And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem. Spirit wants him to go, but the Spirit warns me that in every city, prison and hardships are facing me. So, in general." Whatever city you go to, you're going to have trouble. Mm. What's happening now in chapter 21 is like, this isn't just any city, especially in Jerusalem, you're going to have trouble. Now, Jesus himself had said um, about Jerusalem, I have to go to Jerusalem for no prophet can ever die outside the city of Jerusalem. And that's just, he's just saying, Jerusalem's a city where the stones are wet with the blood Mm. of the prophets over the generations. And Jesus says to the city of Jerusalem, fill up then the measure of the sin of your fathers. This is what you always do. Stephen died there. The first Christian martyr died right there in that city of Jerusalem. And so specifically, 
the Spirit wants Paul to know when you go to Jerusalem, you are going to be arrested. You're going to lose your freedom. Now, why? It's because, yes, the Spirit wants him to go, but he is he is warning him ahead of time what's going to happen so that he himself will not be surprised. Jesus says in John 16, um, that the, the Jews will think that they're serving God when anyone puts you out of the synagogue or even kills you. They'll do such things, John 16, 3, because they have not known the Father or me. And I'm telling you this ahead of time so that when it happens, you will believe. Mm-hmm. So Paul's a man like anyone else when the persecution heats up and people hate on him and all that, he might be tempted to question his faith, to question Jesus. And so he gets warned ahead of time to strengthen his own faith. Beyond that, we get to look at the faith of the apostle Paul, just like the Christians did back then and learn from him. Follow me as I follow Christ. I count my life worth nothing to me. You should be the same. Mm-hmm. Be willing to, to uh, take up your cross and follow Jesus. Be willing to die. Unless a kernel of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it cannot, uh, it remains a single seed. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Be willing to die for the gospel. That seems to be the message here. So what did the church at Tyre do then when it was time for Paul to leave? And what does this show us about Christian love and fellowship? Well, they all go out with Paul um, to the to where the boat is going to take him down the shore uh, to Caesarea. So they all go out there and um, they... they uh, spend time with him. They kneel and pray with him. Um, They know that there's nothing they can do to dissuade him. They tried that, and it's not worked. So he's going to go. So what they do is they kneel down to pray. And by the way, this is one of the kneeling verses. Um, Prayer isn't always kneeling. Jesus actually said in Mark's gospel, when you stand to pray, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him. But Paul says, for this reason, I kneel before the Father, et cetera. So this is kneeling. They're kneeling down to pray, and they pray with Paul, and they they bless him. And then they they, um, love on him, and they spend this time and just... Just like uh, the uh, Ephesian elders at the end of chapter 20, there's a sense of warm love and fellowship through the Spirit. So verse 7 gives us more of Paul's uh, travel log, if you will, and then tells us that Paul went to Caesarea and stayed at the home of Philip. Mm-hmm. What does the title Philip the Evangelist tell us about this man, and what else do we learn about Philip from this passage? Right. Well, Philip is the one that we had follow, followed earlier in Acts chapter 8 who did the ministry to the Ethiopian eunuch. And so he's he's got the name and the reputation of the evangelist, the one who took the gospel. And so uh, Philip was one of the original seven, one of the original deacons, and he is a faithful evangelist um, sharing the gospel, the good news. And so not just with the Ethiopian eunuch, but it was his usual pattern to share the gospel. And he has um, uh, this uh, uh, family of four unmarried daughters who themselves were prophetesses. And so uh, there's a warm welcome there. And they are two great men of God, Paul and Philip, who are greeting each other in the Lord. And they share the same passion to, to take the gospel to lost people. Now, Paul's more of a missionary, which is going cross-culturally, whereas Philip is more of an evangelist, which is staying within his own culture. But they both have the same passion to win lost people to Christ. Now, along with those daughters who prophesied, we're also introduced to the man you mentioned earlier, Agabus, also a prophet. What do these verses, verses 9 through 11, teach us about the gift of prophecy in the early church? And why do you think God ordained that there would be female prophets but not female teachers of men? Right. Very, very important question. So let's first talk about prophecy. Prophecy was a spiritual gift. It's among those listed in uh, 1 Corinthians 12 and other places. The gift of prophecy is the ability to say, thus says the Lord, and give an immediate word from God. 
Um, prophecy is the basis of all of Scripture. All Scripture comes by prophecy. But there were many uh, prophecies that were not recorded in Scripture. They were just part of the of the church life back then. It is highly debatable whether they're still part of the church life now. Some churches like Assembly of God or Pentecostal churches or Sovereign Grace churches have the gift of prophecy as they believe continuing. Uh, I think it's reasonable to test prophets by predictions that come true. Mm. Agabus has two predictions that come true. One is of a famine that was to spread over the entire Roman world. This is back in Acts 11. And now this one, that uh, he is going to be bound when he goes to Jerusalem by the Jews of Jerusalem. He's going to lose his freedom. So uh, Agabus is tested and confirmed as a prophet. I think it's reasonable for prophets today to be similarly tested and confirmed by making predictions of the future. So that's what prophecy is. It is debatable. Some are cessationists. And some are continuationists who believe that the sign gifts like prophecy and tongues have continued. I'm not getting into that uh, right here. Um, I myself am open but cautious. By that I mean I don't think there's biblical grounds for cessationism. But I do think that there are practical questions that we should ask. And it seems like the gifts uh, like this were much more widely being experienced back then than they are now. But again, that's debated. So that is what prophecy is, the ability to to say, thus says the Lord. But the, the kind of crown jewel of prophecy always is the prediction of the future. And that's exactly what goes on here with Agabus. That's the, the, the most important and the most distinctive. Only Christianity has fulfilled prophecy. Islam doesn't have it. Hinduism doesn't have it, etc. The Jews who don't believe in Jesus as a Messiah have turned away from fulfill prophecy. They don't mm. continue to track it. But we Christians uh, know how essential the predictions of the future are. Now let's go to the issue of the female prophets. Um, uh, male prophets greatly outnumber female prophets in the Bible, but there are examples like Huldah, the pre, uh, prophetess in the Old Testament that uh, was there in the days of Josiah. And Isaiah's wife was a prophetess as well. He calls her the prophetess. Um, she's the mother of his children, his wife, but she's a prophetess. Um, and now we've got these four daughters. Uh, so, uh, so there are female prophets. Um, however, Paul doesn't, doesn't command that women would not prophesy uh, to men. Uh, he commands that they would not teach. So when I went through 1 Timothy 2, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority. Um, there, there has to be some then distinction made between the teaching gift and the prophetic gift. To some degree, prophecy is more certain than the teaching gift. All right. There's no logic involved. There's no reasoning involved. Your job is to be effectively a table waiter, taking a fully cooked dish from the kitchen out to the table and serve it. Whereas teaching involves judgment. It involves logic. It involves uh, rightly dividing the principles of exegesis, of, of reasoning, and a lower level of certainty. Hmm. And so you are working through, it is my judgment that this is what we should do, et cetera. There's no judgment involved with prophecy without in any way mean, meaning to be insulting to any prophet, male or female. Understand that God prophesied through a donkey all right, to, um, to Balaam. And, and to some degree, because Balaam himself was a prophet, but a wicked man, basically God was saying, look, you're nothing special. I can raise up a donkey to speak, mm. all right? You're actually acting like a donkey. You know, I think that's kind of what's going on there. 
Um, and sometimes um, people who are themselves living evil lives can prophesy, like Saul did en route to killing David, though he should not have done it. He was he was a very bad person at that point, but still the spirit came on him and he prophesied. Mm. Um, Caiaphas prophesied and, and said, it would be better for one man to die and the nation not perish. So prophecy is just different. The spirit comes on a person and they speak. Now, for the most part, prophets are seen to be godly and, and wonderful people. And so that's what we would say in terms of Philip's daughters. But it is a different matter to teach the word of God. And that is a reasoning process based on the, the scriptures. That reasoning process brought out and judgments are made and pressed onto the hearts of the hearers. And Paul doesn't want women doing that with men. Mm. Yeah. Andy, any final thoughts for us on these verses that we've looked at today? Yeah, I think the big picture here is the movement of the gospel from Jerusalem through Judea, Samaria to the ends of the earth. As Acts 1.8 says, that's the theme of the entire book. But again and again, we see the cost. We see the cost of evangelism and missions. It is a costly thing to share the gospel with lost people. It is a costly thing to travel to distant lands and to hostile places and share the gospel. It is, a, it is a costly thing to go into the teeth of an angry crowd and tell them that Christ is the Savior and that if they repent and believe, they'll be saved from their sins. Mm -hmm. These things are costly. The, the Holy Spirit wants us to know that so that just like Paul being warned ahead of time, that we're warned and that in our efforts to share the gospel, um, that our eyes are open and we're aware we're going to suffer, but the Holy Spirit is given. Power comes on us, not that we would not be afraid, but that we would not shrink back from delivering the message. We would not shrink back from proclaiming the gospel. Paul says, I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. Not that we would not be like that, but that we would preach anyway and the Spirit's power would be on display in us. So from this point on, it's just one trial after another, one defense after another of Paul, plus the journey to Rome and the shipwreck and all that. We're going to see that. And I think the lessons are, it is a costly thing to be a witness for Jesus Christ. Well, this has been part one of episode 41 in our Acts Bible Study podcast. We want to invite you to join us next time as we continue our conversation and conclude this episode entitled To Jerusalem, where we'll wrap up our discussion of Acts chapter 21, verses 1 through 36. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast, and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.